0: Good morning, my name is Mary Pearsall, and the Old Testament reading is found in Genesis, the first chapter, verse 26 to 27. Then God said, Let us make human beings in our image to be like us. They will reign over the fish in the sea, the birds in the sky, the livestock, all the wild animals on the earth, and the small animals that scurry along the ground. So God created human beings in his own image in the image of god he created them male and female he created them the word of the lord hi my name is sandra Pearsall. the new testament reading found in philippians 2:12 through 13 therefore my dear friends as you have always obeyed not only in my presence but now much more in my absence continue to work out your salvation With fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you to will and to act in order to fulfill his good purpose. The Word of the Lord. Good morning. My name is Marty Pearsall, and I thank you for standing for the reading of the Gospel, which is found this morning in John. So the disciples said to one another, Has anyone brought him something to eat? And Jesus said to them, My food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. This is the gospel of the Lord. Well, good morning, church. It is really good to be back with you. Uh, it, was, it was good to give a good report about New Life Downtown up at New Life North or New Life Maine um, the house, the big house that we're all a part of and that sent us out. They were very encouraged to hear about all of uh, what the Lord is doing here and of your ongoing love for one another. And uh, so thanks for loaning me up there for a couple weeks. But I tell you what, it is so good to be back where I belong down here. So happy to be here. We are in the middle of a series on work. And Pastor Brad Baker, I know, spoke the last couple Sundays, and uh, two weeks ago he spoke about work as a way of worshiping the Lord. And he talked about work as being done unto the Lord. And then last week he spoke about work as witness, work as a way of kind of uh, reflecting God's own rule into the world. This morning and next week, I kind of want to zoom out a little bit and take us back to the beginning, to go back to Genesis and to say this week, to say, why do we work? And then next week to say, what do we do with the toil in work. The toil and even the joy, the toil where we find it and the joy where we find it, uh, that'll be next week. Now for many of us, our, our impressions of work come at an early age. They come when we see our parents uh, working. A lot of times that's the case. Uh, we have four children and our third um, is a boy and he's four years old and so he's getting to that age where he's conscious of Of me leaving every day, and maybe he's conscious of being the only dude left in the house with women. And so he's especially um, persistent or persuasive about saying, Dad, do you really have to go to work? So about a month ago, he said, Dad, why do you work? I said, that's a good question, son. I'm just about to do this whole sermon series on it, and I thought about launching into it with my four-year-old, but I did not. (laughs) But that is the question, isn't it? Why do we work? Now, my early impressions of seeing um, a person work was my dad, and I wanted to show you this picture uh, mostly because look at those sideburns, <laughs> you know. <laughs> and so there's my dad right there. I mean, just look at that. I mean, the the, the wide lapels and the. Mutton shop. So my dad was the director of public relations at the Hilton Hotel uh, in Malaysia. That was one of his first jobs. He would later go on into an advertising career and was an account director for some very big accounts. And then the Lord called both he and my mom out of that and into vocational ministry. And so they eventually gave up their jobs. This is when our whole family moved from Malaysia to America so that my parents could go to Bible school. But I never sensed in... Uh, my parents and anything that said, "Okay, this was unholy work, the secular world," and then now this is holy work. There always seemed to be, uh, as their own faith got became more and more alive in the Lord, there always seemed to be this sense of, "Okay, even in the workplace, there can be something holy about it." But I, I, I've come to realize that actually, this is not the way most of us tend to think about it. We tend to think that if you are working for a Christian ministry or for a church, then you are doing holy work. And the rest of us just sort of have to you know, accept our place as second-class citizens and just be quiet and write the check, right? And fund the work because the re- our work is sort of less than, but as long as we can make more money, that, that's the redemptive part of our secular work. And I want to challenge those presuppositions. I want to challenge our tendency to say... This kind of work is holy, this kind of work is second class, but it can be redeemed if you make lots of money and fund, quote-unquote, God's work. I want to I shatter all of those premises and zoom us way back and say, why do we work anyway? What is the purpose for this? Is work only important because we can evangelize in the workplace? Or is there something else that makes work holy? So turn with me in your Bibles. We're going to go all the way back to Genesis Genesis 1, verse 26 and 27, we heard it in the Old Testament reading this morning. I just want to make reference to it again and point out a couple things. Then God said, let us make man or humans in our image after our likeness and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all of the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. And so God made man or humans in his own image and in the image of God he created him. Male and female he created them. Now, if you're paying attention, you, you will have caught that over and over again, even in these short two verses, is this phrase, made them in his image, made them in his image. Now listen, in an age where papyri is precious, a, a precious commodity, where you're not going to waste space in writing things down, in a culture where these stories were passed down via oral tradition for, for generations, and finally someone writes it down, why write it down with all this repetition? Because there was no way to do yellow highlighting. There was no way to do bold face type. Okay? This was a way of saying, hello, something important is being said. This was a way of saying central to the story, central to our understanding of, human, of what it means to be human, is this idea of being made in the image of God. And then skip down here into chapter 2, verse 8 and 9. And the Lord God planted a garden in Eden. Now, I love this, because you have in Genesis 1, the storyteller saying it in very poetic language, God speaking, let there be light, let there be a separation between the heavens. And all of these are words, speaking creative words. Now, in chapter 2, the storyteller takes a little more of a detailed approach and shows God planting. It's wonderful, isn't it? God as a gardener. God planted a garden in Eden in the east and there he put the man whom he had formed and out of the ground the Lord made to spring up every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. The tree of life was in the midst of the garden and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Skip down again to verse 15. And the Lord took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to work it and keep it. Right off the bat, we recognize that work is a pre-fall call. Work is not the result of the fall. Now, some of you are like, it's not? Because my idea of paradise would be no work. But here it is, before there's sin, before there's anything, quote-unquote, wrong with the world, God says, I'm creating humans to work this garden. Here's something we don't often talk about. We imagine creation as being made perfect and complete and God putting Adam and Eve in it and then saying, now don't screw this up. (laughs) But instead, God says, here's a garden. Now you work it. You keep it. In other words, creation was perfect but incomplete. Creation was perfect but incomplete. It was the human's job to take this garden, to cultivate it, and to spread it to let it go outward. Now, come back to that moment here of why the writer writes down repeatedly, in the image of God, he made them. In the image of God, he made them. The thing that makes us humans is that we've been made in God's image. And there are so many ways to unpack what that means. But in light of this series, I want you to think of it as being an angled mirror. A mirror that reflects God back into his world. That 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 God says, I want you to govern this world the way I govern this world. So now all of a sudden when we hear the word dominion, dominion is not let's exploit, let's make the, you know, we. I, I hear people sometimes justify their decisions to pillage the earth in the name of business. And they say, well, we have dominion, by golly. And yet dominion, the idea of dominion is to say, how would God rule this world? How would the wise and loving creator bring his order into this world? What does that look like? You be that. Now, and we see this early with what what God asks Adam to do. What does he do? God says, Adam, you get to name the animals. You get to do a quasi-creative act. You get to speak something that was not as though it is. You get to give this a name where there was no name. Bring into it something defining. This is the first picture of Adam joining God in it. I think from this big picture in Eden, I think if we were to take a phrase out of this and say, okay, so then what does it look like to work? We would say this, work is collaborating with God to cultivate his world. Work is collaborating with God to cultivate his world. No, we're not making something out of nothing, and yet we are to make something of this world. Now, contrast this with kind of the idea of what culture says. Culture says, work, oh, you're just working for the weekend. How's the rest of the song go? Everybody's working for the weekend. Right Now, I know this is summertime, and you're thinking, why are we talking about work? I'm getting ready for my vacation, or I've just come back from vacation and hating that I'm not still on it, or I don't get to take a vacation, and I'm stuck. So either way, this hurts, man. <laughs> talking about work in July, and there's no AC in here. I get it. I, I know. So why, why, why are we doing de- Okay, so we have this mentality that says work, all everything about culture says work is this necessary evil. We're just working for the weekend. But you know what? I think Christians have a version of this. The Christian version of working for the weekend is heaven. Heaven is the cosmic weekend, and work is kind of the way we just sort of not be bored in the meantime. And so we don't have a theology of work. We we kind of we may have a theology of rest. We may have a theology of play, but at the, at the core, we have this theology of escape. And so heaven is the cosmic weekend that we can't wait to get to. Oh, Lord, you know, take me up there. Swing low, sweet chariot, you know. I'll fly away. We hate work. And next week, we'll talk about why. But this week, I want to say work is holy. Work is how you reflect God's image. Work is how you collaborate with God to cultivate His world. Work is image-bearing. Work is how you participate in your identity as an image-bearer. Never mind the fact that the end of the story is not our going away, but the great heavenly city, heavenly city coming down here. That God is not the God that abandoned this created world, right? Do we think that the God who spoke into Eden and called it good is the God that says, nah, let's just scratch that. Let's go over to my place where the A.C. works, you know. <laughs> now, God says, I'm coming back down to finish what I started. And I want you to work this place in the meantime. Think about that. So what does that look like? What does it look like to really collaborate with God? Let's take those two phrases, collaborating with God, cultivating his world. What is, what is what would it look like to collaborate with God? I think part of the answer to that is to is to make a distinction between vocation and occupation. Now we most of the time use those words interchangeably, but vocation comes from this Latin vox, voice call. Vocation has to do with your calling occupation has to do with the context. Now, I want to say this. You can live out your calling in many different contexts. Your vocation can take many different occupational shapes. But part of collaborating with God is understanding my vocation is not synonymous with my occupation. That my calling is to be this and I'm going to try to live out this whether I'm at home with the children whether I'm in a volunteer position at church whether I'm whatever I do I'm going to do this in a way that lives out my calling I was thinking about my mom you know in in Malaysia it's very common for um, for women to work full-time and to have the children really more or less raised by help that they have around the home and It wasn't the case in our household. My mom stayed home with my sister and I. And then as we got a little bit older, she began to work again part-time. But she's always been a teacher. And so from the early years, she would teach uh, English to these Chinese students that were getting ready to go to seminary. And she would prepare them to learn in English. And then uh, later on, she would do these different tutorial classes. Then eventually, after my sister and I had grown and gone away to college, she started a school and ran a school. So there's this teaching thing that's always been part of her Calling. And yet that took shape even when she was home. So we would be in the kitchen helping her out and she'd be teaching us stuff, you know. And we didn't always know. That's how good she was at teaching. We didn't always know we were learning, <laughs> you know. Because <laughs> that would have been uninteresting as a child. She was so good at it. That we were just having these conversations. All of a sudden we'd realize, I think mom just taught us, like, about my love for the Bible, my love for learning, my love for teaching came because this. Vocation was lived out for her, regardless of her occupation. The calling took shape regardless of the context. I was thinking of my friend Aaron, who works as a, a barista at the Starbucks that I used to go to all the time, and he 's a worship leader, went through the school of worship. But every time I walk into that Starbucks and Aaron's there, I, I feel like he 's leading worship as he 's making lattes, you know like, "Hey, glad." And, and, you know, it is a little bit of that cheers feeling. You know, you want to go where everybody knows your name. But it's also that, he, that he's living out something, that he's living out a calling that is beyond the confines of his context. Does that make sense? That's what I think a little bit of what collaborating with God looks like. But what about this other piece, cultivating? How do we cultivate the ground where we are? How do we make something of the world, not take something from the world? Think about that. So often our culture says your approach to business or to work is take everything you can from the world, and God says no. Make something of the world. Cultivate. It's it's an agrarian image of make cultivating. Now, my father-in-law is a farmer, and this is a picture of their farm in Iowa. I took uh, this picture several years ago, and you'll see. I mean, if you look, there's a fuel tank that has not been used in. I don't know how many years, but it's still there, and it makes for a nice picture. There's an old rundown shed with, like, spare parts and tools to everything just in case. And there's the old tractor. And he farms, you know, barley, alfalfa, corn, but mostly he raises beef cattle. And so here's a picture of the cattle, just some of them. Now, cows don't really respond when you call them by name, Right? except when they do. And I love this picture. It's totally candid. This is my father-in-law. Just went out to the field and says, well, I forget what he named her, Bertha or something. I don't know. you know." And this cow comes walking. and He's scratching her, removing all the fleas and stuff like that. He said to me one day, and I actually stopped and said, wait, say that again. I want to write this down. And he said this to me one year. He said, every magazine I read tells me how not progressive I am. He's an old school farmer. And he says, and how that's a bad thing. But he says, Glenn, I have to intentionally be regressive. Because for me, he says, farming is a way of life. He says, I think of farming as a vocation. He hadn't even heard my sermon yet. <laughs> and he says, I am not an agro businessman. There is a business orientation to things, but that's not what drives it for me. Imagine that. There's a business orientation to this, but that's not what drives it. What drives it is, I love the dirt. I love the soil. I love the land. I love the livestock. This is what Eugene Peterson calls vocational holiness. Treating your vocation, treating your calling, wherever it lives, treating it with a kind of holiness, saying, you know, what I'm doing here, this is holy work. And actually, we all know the people who treat their work that way, and we want to do business with them, right? I mean, have you ever been to the person that's just kind of trying to rush you in and out the door, and you're like, yeah, I, I don't think I want to see you again. We had, we had a pediatrician like that once. We now have a pediatrician that almost takes too long with our children, you know? I mean, it's like, catching up with us, knows about their stories, is asking these questions, we'll call later that evening, just wanted to check, how's Nora doing? We're thinking, who does this? There's money to be made! And yet, it's always refreshing when someone says, I get there's a business orientation, I'm not naive, this isn't, you know, but I'm going to treat what I do with a kind of holiness. That's what it means to cultivate the ground. I don't want to embarrass him, but Ben Woody's here, and Ben was the contractor for uh, this, the place that we just moved into uh, over in Rockerman, helped us remodel a house that was, uh, you know, I want to say old, but then I remember the house was built in the same year that I was born, so really, just a young house, I mean, just a great-looking <laughs> house, but kind of run down, though, at <laughs> certain parts. But, but I, I, I think Ben was the kind of guy who takes his work with a kind of holiness, the care, the detail, the attention. And you know these people, these people who say, okay, I'm, I'm not just throwing this up to get the next one in. I'm cultivating. I'm cultivating something here. Now, I know you're looking at me and you're like, "You yeah, dude, listen, Glenn, you little preacher, man, you little poet. <laughs> That's just not reality, you don't know the line of work that I'm in, and that's, you know, that's, that's all you know, nice for you to say. I had a friend a few years ago who worked for a bank, and he said, he said Glenn, the pressure was so strong to sign people up for loans that they had no business signing up for that I had to get out because the whole environment was, how, how, have you met your numbers? How many more? you know, lines of credit have customers taken out. And he said, I, I just couldn't do it. I'm not ignorant of the fact that sometimes you do have to change where you work in order to change how you work. I, I'm not ignorant to that. That's true. Sometimes you have to change where you work in order to change how you work. But, other, but But for a lot of us, that's not the case. The question can be more creative than that. God, how can I work differently even where... I am. But still, I know. I know what you're saying. But still, Glenn, this isn't Eden. Like that was nice for Adam and Eve to cultivate the garden. Sure, great. That was Eden. We're not living in Eden. It's true. You're not. And it's true that I don't know the details of every single one of your situations, your work in the home, your work outside the home. I don't know the pressures of it. But I do know you're not the first to work in difficult conditions. You're not the first to have a terrible boss. And how do I know this? I know this because there's this amazing story. Actually, there are loads of stories of the people of God finding themselves in places where they didn't want to be. The whole rest of this Old Testament scriptures from when they got kicked out of Eden is this whole thing of them saying, I thought we were supposed to be here. And then they finally do get here, the land flowing with milk and honey, the perfect job. And then they can't stay there. And then they get driven out. And so there's this long drama of the people of God not being where they thought they should be and trying to figure out, how do we do this? One of my favorite stories of this is in the book of Jeremiah, where Jeremiah is talking to the the people of Judah as they're about to go to Babylon. Babylon. As I said, I don't know what your work is like. I don't know who your boss is or what they're like. But the odds are that the king of Babylon is worse, was worse than your boss is. (laughs) Odds are being a slave, a Jewish slave in Babylon was worse than your current. I'm I'm just a little gamble. And that's not to make light of your situation, truly. But it's actually to bring you hope. Because listen to what the prophet says to these people about to go into exile. Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, to all the exiles whom I have sent into exile. This is worth circling, underlining. You know, I know we've all got Jeremiah twenty nine eleven on our fridge, but I think we should put four through seven on our fridge. Whom I have sent into exile. Listen, isn't this amazing that God is saying, you know what? This These conditions stink but I'm the one behind it. Now, can I say that carte blanche over every single situation in your life? No. But how would it change your perspective if you began to say, God, Monday morning, you are sending me to this job. God, you have sent me to this home to the care and raising of children. God, you have sent me to this poopy diaper today. God, you have sent me to a sink full of dishes today. God, you have sent me to invest in these little ones, to disciple them. God, you have sent me to the construction site. God, you have sent me to start. God, you have. How would that change your Mondays? To say, You have sent me. And then it goes on, he says, from Jerusalem to Babylon, build houses and live in them, plant gardens and eat their produce. Here, in my mind, is a reaffirmation of the Genesis call. This is God saying, working a garden is not just Eden stuff, it's Babylon stuff. Working a garden is not just when the conditions are ideal, you can also do this in Babylon plant a garden eat their produce take wives and have sons and daughters take wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage that they may bear sons and daughters multiply there and do not decrease what's he saying this is three generations worth and actually there's repeated themes in the prophet books about how they're going to be in exile at least three generations and they were but i think the message to these people going into exile is this you're going to be here a while You're going to be here a while. Don't postpone serving the Lord just because the conditions aren't ideal. And this is a rebuke to me. This is a rebuke to us that says, I'll work for the Lord once I get that new job, once I get that promotion, once my boss retires, once I fill in the blank. And God says, what, you think your job is Babylon? It's okay, call it Babylon. It's okay to name your job Babylon. (laughs) If that will help you, it's okay. My job is Babylon. Great. Now let's plant gardens in Babylon. Make your peace here. And then, verse 7, the killer verse, the verse that, oh my gosh, is explosive if you let it get a hold of you. It says, But seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile and pray to the Lord on its behalf. For in its welfare, you will find your welfare. This word for welfare is connected to the vision, the spirit of shalom. Now, a good Jewish person would have grown up praying the Psalms. And if you grew up praying the Psalms, you would learn that you seek the shalom of Yerushalayim. You pray for the peace of what city? Jerusalem. And Jeremiah is saying, Now nah, you pray for the peace of Babylon. And they're saying, excuse me? No wonder they threw him in an empty well. No wonder they stoned him. Heretic, we only seek the good of God's kingdom. We only go to Christian coffee shops and buy testaments. (laughs) I will not seek the shalom of Babylon. And God says, but I've sent you to Babylon. So you seek its peace. Because in its flourishing, you'll find your flourishing. Listen, there are no perfect conditions in which to work. Every line of work that you're in is going to be implicated with some level of injustice and oppression. Okay? This is my challenge to some of you in your 20s who are saying, oh, I don't want to work because I just want to opt out of the economy because there's, this is all just, it's, I'm jaded, man. I get it. And we need more awareness and we need more work to subvert systems of injustice and oppression. Absolutely. But you cannot subvert a system if you withdraw from it. You cannot subvert a system if you withdraw from it. And, and God is saying to these exiles, go, go in it, go into Babylon and make it flourish. Live in a different way, work in a different way and watch, you will flourish too. How can I do this as a teacher? How can I do this as a a contractor? How can I do this as a banker? How can I do this in the military? How can I do this where I am? Now you're saying, okay, Glenn, (laughs) if what you were saying earlier was difficult, this, now, (laughs) this is impossible. I know. I have led you to this cliff by design. Actually, even the Jews in Babylon were not able to live this out. But the call that was on Abraham's family, the call that was on Israel as a nation, the call that was on these people of Judah on their way to Babylon, the call on their life, their vocation was fulfilled in one man's vocation. And his name is Jesus the Messiah. Jesus, the representative of Israel. Jesus, the one who says, let me take your vocation, which you could not live out, and let me live it out. Let me bring it to its culmination. Let me sum it up in myself. And so Jesus is the one who leaves his home and comes to a strange land. Jesus is the one who comes as the servant, as the slave. Jesus is the one who in John's gospel repeatedly refers to his ministry, his calling as work. John 4, we heard it already. He says, I'm doing the work of my, my food is to do the will of my father and accomplish his work. John 5, he says, my father is working and I am working too. Jesus, the one who comes like a slave in exile into our world enters it, takes it on, and says, I will roll up my sleeves and work. Jesus, who told the story of a master of a vineyard who said, this tree is not bearing fruit, let's cut it down. Jesus, who says, there was a gardener then who says, no, don't cut it down, give me a year. Let me dig around it and surround it with manure, and let's see if it will bear fruit. Jesus, I can't help but think, was describing his own vocation saying, I'm the one. I'm the one who puts my hands in the dirt of humanity. I'm the one who digs around this tree of every heart and every life that hasn't learned to bear fruit yet. I'm the one who rolled up my sleeves and is surrounding their lives with manure so that it can be fertilizer again. I can't help but see Jesus as God at work. See, there's a little play in our sermon series title. It's not just God at the workplace, whether the workplace is at home with children or the workplace is uh, outside of the home. It's not just God in the workplace, but God at work in you. This is why our New Testament reading today was from Philippians 2, where Paul says, you can work out your salvation because it is God who is working in you. Church, the hope The hope that we could have a paradigm shift about our work. The hope that we actually can collaborate with God because we are in union with him. The hope that we can actually cultivate this ground and be like Jesus. The hope of doing this is only possible because Jesus Christ came and lived and died and rose again. It's because the Spirit of God lives in you and in me. Now you don't go to work like everybody else goes to work. You go to work filled with the Spirit of God. You go to work with God at work in you. I want to invite the worship team to come up this morning. There's a prayer from the Anglican Book of Common Prayer that's called The prayer for vocation in daily work. And I love this. I love this because it reminds us that we can live out a higher calling regardless of the occupational context. Paid, unpaid, home, out of the home, moms, dads, singles. And I want us to pray this as a way of letting the Lord reclaim our holy imagination. To say, see this differently. See this as my invitation to collaborate with me and to cultivate this ground. Look at these words here on the screen. It first talks about the Father and His handiwork. And then it says, deliver us in our various occupations. And it says, from the service of self alone. And it goes on and it says, that we'll work for the common good and for grace and truth. So would you stand this morning and pray this? Let's lift up our hands to the Lord as a way of offering back to the Lord all of our work. And all of us have work, paid or unpaid, in the home, outside the home. Let's pray this together. Almighty God, our Heavenly Father, You declare Your glory and show forth Your handiwork in the heavens and in the earth. Deliver us in our various occupations from the service of self alone, that we may do the work You give us to do in truth and beauty and for the common good. And for the sake of Him, who came among us as one who serves your Son, Jesus Christ, our Lord, who lives and reigns with you and the Holy Spirit, one God, forever and ever. Amen. And would you take a moment where you are and just begin to confess? We don't confess our sins to shame ourselves. We confess our sins as a way of responding to the grace and the mercy of God that has been offered us in Christ. Maybe for some of us we can say, God, forgive me for not recognizing work as a way of collaborating with you. God, I want to turn from that. Or maybe some of you need to say, God, forgive me for not trying to cultivate my corner of the world, but for trying to exploit and take something from the world rather than making something of the world. Wherever you are in that, would you just kind of lift up your hands and begin to quietly pray, A confession, prayer, asking the Lord for mercy.